Hello to my Hello. friends in Cockermouth. Um, wish I could be with you um, in the flesh, so to speak, but that's not possible just at the moment. And Roger tells me you've been studying the end of Acts and someone has asked the question, what happened next? That's a good question because uh, when we read uh, the way that Luke ends the last chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, everything seems to be pretty good for, for Paul. Although he's had a rough time getting to Rome, had uh, been under house arrest uh, for a couple of years, nearly lynched by a mob in Jerusalem, attempts made on his life and then, and then, then a shipwreck. As he's as he's on, on 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 his way now he's at Rome and we read that things yeah seem pretty good. There's been no complaints uh, received from Jerusalem, so there's that's probably no basis for a trial much uh, at all. And he's able to engage with people. People come to his home, and he's able to share the gospel. And and uh, many no doubt are converted. Um, what, what happened to Paul after that? Well, we don't really know. His intention was to get to, to Spain and there's no historical evidence whether he did or whether he didn't. But what did happen to Paul was that under, under Nero in AD 67, he was executed as, as a criminal. Um, and it begs another question is why, why was it that Nero began this persecution of the church because up to that time the Christians were seen as part of Judaism protected um, religion but in AD 64 there was a Rome there was a fire in Rome and a good part of Rome burned and people were suggesting that maybe Nero had something to do with this so he needed to shift the blame and normally that would have gone on to the Jews um, but this time the Christians are blamed and there's a persecution. It's, a, it, it's limited to Rome, but it's pretty horrific. Um, you know, there were, there, were, there, were, there, were the, there were those Christians that were fed to wild beasts in the arena. But there was also those that at night time were put on poles, um, pit, uh, pitched uh, with tar and then were set alight. And, uh, and, 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 and uh, yeah. It was, it was horrific. And we asked the question, well, why did, why, did, why, did, why did Nero go down that road? And a possible solution is that it was known that his wife was a sympathiser to the, to the Jewish religion and May herself had secretly um, been a uh, follower of Yahweh. We really, uh, we really don't know. Um, but um, what we do know is that from that time, um, the Christian church tended to be blamed when things were going wrong within the empire. Because the Roman Empire was polytheistic, it had many, many deities. And it, as we know, the emperors themselves were deified. Um, they believed that when things went wrong, it was because the gods or the deities were displeased and they needed placating and someone had to take the blame. And as Paul is dying in AD 67, um, Jerusalem has been under siege from the Roman legions led by Titus for something like one year. 
and in three years after that, in AD 70, Titus breaks through and Jerusalem is destroyed and the temple is also destroyed. It was never his intention to destroy the temple. He had planned that the temple will be dedicated to the worship of Roman deities, especially emperor worship. But remember the words of Jesus? He said, not one stone will be standing. And how did that happen? Because contrary to their to their discipline, Roman soldiers, I guess after four years of siege, they ran amok and they set the temple on fire. And so the words of Jesus, as he predicted, one stone will stand upon another came uh, to be and the struggle with Judaism which is there right through the Acts of the Apostles the church struggling particularly with the circumcision party within the church and the Judaizers outside of the church that battle has now more or less come to an end but the church have two more battles to fight. One is within and the other is without. And this, this morning, I'm going to deal first of all with a battle from within the church. Because from around AD 70 onwards, the gospel primarily went to the Gentile world. And as I said earlier, the Gentile world is very, very different. It's polytheistic. Um, many gods need implicating. There was no, no belief in a creator God, but of these warring cosmic forces. And it might surprise you, but there were within the cults, there were there were those who wanted Jesus. They liked Jesus. They liked what they heard of him, but they wanted him on their own terms. And so as we come outside this period of Luke's Acts and now into the period of what we call the early church, and if you were at a theological college, the early church studies would be basically from the time of Jesus to the time of Constantine and particularly the Council of Nicaea under Constantine in 325 AD. So that's the, the period which we are going to be looking at and will come into Constantine at some time, uh, probably more more in the next session rather than this session. Uh, you would have heard of a group of people called the Gnostics. Who were they? Well, again, very difficult to get hold of because it's more like an umbrella term for people who believed certain things, not all agreeing or believing the same thing. But the one thing they did believe is this that only that which is spirit is entirely good. And anything that is matter, anything, so that which is which we would say is created, God's creation, or our body, that which is physical, is entirely evil. And so they wanted Jesus, but they had somehow to apply their beliefs at, to, to, to make Jesus acceptable to them. And so they had to deny 
doctrines which to us are basic, which are in the creeds now established. Um, uh, the fact that Jesus was holy man and, 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 and holy God. Um, so they would deny his manhood and his deity as one. They would deny the virgin birth. <laughs> they, would, they would deny his physical crucifixion and particularly his, his physical res resurrection. When it came to salvation, they believed that salvation is the escape from the body, not in faith, not by faith in Christ, but, but escape from the body. And, and somehow your, your, your spirit would make its way to a superior being and, it, and, and some of them actually taught that it would go through several intermediaries where they would be refined. Um, Jesus was one of them. Even the devil was one of them. And there was one system that had 365 of these intermediaries. For us, it's very difficult to, to get our brain about this. So, so salvation was escape from this body in which we are imprisoned, this evil body, uh, and, and, and until we are absorbed into this supreme being. Um, and, and, and they believe the only way you could do that was by having this knowledge, comes from the Greek word gnosis, this secret knowledge, which they possessed. They liked the Christians. That's why they visited, their teachers visited the Christian fellowships and churches and brought their teaching. They liked the Christians, but they wanted to slot Christ, Jesus Christ, into the, what they basically believed. Now that's true today, isn't it? If you think about it, um, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses and others, this is what they do. Um, and we would say, well, that is clearly, clearly heresy. Um, so they denied Christ's true humanity in two ways. The first is that they taught that Jesus only appeared to have a body. In other words, he was, he was, he was sort of ghost-like. And this is, this is called um, docetism because it comes from the Greek word to, to, which, to, 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 to seemed to be. And this is probably the background of the teaching that you find in, in uh, John's um, first epistle. The second was called the ad uh, adoptionism or adoption, adoptionists, in that this is what they taught, the divine Christ. In other words, the divine Christ, this, this deity came into Christ's, uh, came into the man, the man, Jesus at his baptism, but left him before he died. And they were used, they would even use verses of scripture like, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So so the spirit is dismissed and it makes its way. And the man, not the man, God, the man is crucified on the cross. In terms of morality, it, it's strange, it's weird, it's paradoxical. For for some, they were what we would call ascetic. So if, if, if the body is evil, then let's, let, let's treat it. Let's, let's, let, let's purge it. Let's beat it. Let's do all sorts of things. Um, for some of them, 
They, they, they denied marriage. They said, no, 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 marriage is physical. So to be single is, is, is to be, is, that, that, is, that is the right way. What we call asceticism. But then there were others, <laughs> paradoxically, um, who said that this was their logic. If, if that which is physical or matter, um, since, since matter and not breaking God's law is evil, therefore breaking God's law is, um, is of no consequence whatsoever. So let's eat, drink and be merry and debauchery and it doesn't really matter. God's only concerned, or the supreme being, only concerned with that which is, that, 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 that which is um, of spirit. So what you do with your body doesn't really matter. And to, to be honest, there are many variations of, of their teaching. Um, in fact, some would even go, some scholars would say, even goes back to about the 8th century BC. I, when I studied this at Bible College, I found this very hard. In fact, I said, when I did my um, early church exams, I thought, whatever question there is on Gnosticism, I'm not going to do it. And that's fact, I did, because it wasn't a bad question. But for me, it, Gnosticism is like a bar of soap in the bath you know you're washing yourself then boop, you've lost it and then and I, that's how I find it now that might just be because of my limitations but it came to a head in the mid second century with a Gnostic teacher a guy called Marcion Marcion was a wealthy man he was a ship owner and he came, his approach was somewhat different from the classic if we got if we can use that word, the classic not Gnostics, because he came from a, a Christian background. He came from a, 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 a home where the Bible was taught. And his father was a, was, was a bishop in the church. And Marcion uh, presented his, his teaching. He was excommunicated several times. He himself was very ascetic, wanted to live this this uh, this. It's a part life. Um, he, he didn't marry, and he forbade marriage. Um, and uh, he was thrown out of the church. And what do you do when you're thrown out of the church? But you believe that what you're teaching is right. You're passionate. Apparently, he was a very gracious, gentle man, and people loved him, attracted to him. What do you do? You, well, you start your own church. And when it comes to the Bible, this is what he taught. He said, well, you know, when it comes to the Old Testament, he believed that the creator God was an evil God because he created matter. The only good God is the one we have in the New Testament, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. This is, this is, this is the good God. And then the, it, it, it comes into that warring of deities. Oh, my goodness. Here we go. The bar of soap in the bath, in the bath again. So what he taught, he said, he said the Jews got it wrong. The only, the only enlightened Jew was Paul. So take your Bible, rip out the Old Testament. Then you've got a lot of quotes from Paul of the Old Testament. Well, we just scrub them out. You're not left with very much. So what do you do when you're not left with much? Well, you write your own Bible, which is what, which is what he did. And in actual fact, his church was very popular. It grew and it began to challenge the Christian Orthodox churches. And the church had to do something about it. It was a battle that they had to fight. Because what happened was this. These Gnostic teachers 
and they were very charismatic. And they probably only had about three sermons, so they could trip around, they could earn a very good living. And so what the church had to decide, how do we com combat this? And certain things sort of developed at that time. So the church did win the battle. Some of them were good and some of them were not so good. But basically, the first thing was the church had to say, well, what do we regard as being authentic Christian doctrine? What do we believe is the truth? And where does the truth come from? We need a yardstick by which to judge these things. And the word canon of scripture, or canon, it comes from the Greek word, which basically means yardstick or measuring rod, something like that. And they said, well, that, that which clearly is apostolic has come from the apostles, <coughs> excuse me, or those who associate with the apostles, those books, those letters that were written. Remember at this time, they weren't together in, as we have in a New Testament. And they, so they, 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 they collected um, and, and said, these, these, these writings of the apostles are the ones that you can trust. And then there were other things that were written, which tells you what to do when a prophet comes and what, what he teaches and how long you should keep him and what, what you should pay him, all these sort of, um, sort of things that were very, 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 very practical. And really, it was from there, about 160, 170 AD, that the canon of scripture began to be put together. And that was very good. And, uh, you know, it took several centuries until we have it as it is today. The Lion Handbook of the Bible is very good. If you've got that, just go in. It will tell you how it developed over those, over those three centuries. Some books were excluded. Others were brought in. And then we, 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 we when you were baptised in the early church, that you, 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 you made a statement of faith of what you believed in. And at this time, those statements of faith began to be enlarged into what we, what we call the creeds. And so people began to learn these, these, these enlarged um, confessions of faith. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ our Son, born of a Virgin Mary, which the Gnostics divide, suffered under Pontius Pilate, Gnostics denied, was crucified, Gnostics denied, and was dead and buried, and was raised on the third day, Gnostics denied. So you can see where we're going. So the creeds became enlarged, and that was good. I think sometimes we miss things like that. We regard that as old hat, and sometimes we, we, th we throw the baby out with the bathwater and we... We, so that so that was a good thing, um, but also alongside that, when 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 you're being very cautious, sometimes rather than correcting things, we tend to put a block on things. So in order to make sure that they, these Gnostic prophets and Gnostic teachers did not come in, basically this is what was said. Look. Your local bishop or your pastor is, it was basically the same, same, same word, same title there, but your pastor, you can depend on him. He's the one you can trust. He's, he's, he's the one that is, labours with you. He's taught you these things. And so when you hear your pastor, 
you hear God. Well, I hope that's true, but we know that in the New Testament, you know, Paul taught that there was more than just pastors. There were teachers, there were apostles, there were prophets, there was evangelists, and there was all sorts of other ministries, and there was gifts of the Holy Spirit. Um, and what, get, what happens around this time, which is bad, really, you lose, you lose the charisma, the charismatic gifts. You lose the other ministries and everything comes locked into this one man who may have been brilliant, but God has not invested all his ministries into one. There's only one man he invested that in, and that is, that is our saviour, Jesus, Jesus Christ, prophet, priest and king and and so that wasn't that wasn't so, that wasn't so good it was at that time that we we the church then when you lose the charisma you you become institutional you're, you're more organized you're you know you're structured you're not taking any chances and so that's where the church went so when you were saved when you came to Christ, what did you do? You were baptised. You, you, you didn't know everything. You didn't understand everything. Your life was beginning to change. Maybe there were still habits you had which needed to be sorted out. But you were, you were saved or you were baptised rather because you believed in Jesus. You were justified by faith. And by grace you're being saved. And you were baptised. He who believes and is baptised shall be saved, said Jesus. But at this time, because they were, oh, we don't want any dodgy people in the church, and these Gnostics and other weirdos are trying to get in. What they did, they delayed baptism for three years until these people were holy enough to be baptised. Um, and so basically you're confusing the doctrine of justification with, with sanctification. And that was bad, and it led to a very institutional uh, church in the, in, in the second century, mid-second century particularly. And then you had a group of people that began to write what we call apologies. Um, um, it, apology, uh, apologetics um, is not saying sorry, it's making a case. And so you have what we call the the apologists, intellectuals, that were addressing some of these issues. It was neither good nor bad. It was, say, you've got a guy called Irenaeus who writes against the Gnostic, very, very good stuff. And, and some wrote to the emperors and said, we Christians, why do you persecute us? We are good for the empire, for goodness sake. When people are dying, we attend to them. When, you're, when, when soldiers come home and they're wounded and they'll never fight again, they don't have any pensions, we care for them. When there are plagues, we don't escape to the hills like everybody else. We stay, and many of our numbers have laid down their lives. We're good for you. I don't think there's any, there's any um, evidence that those, those apologists actually uh, achieved uh, very much. But one of the things you find... Now, you, 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 you're going to have to... Um, just weigh this one but this is my opinion from my study of church history is when you find that you lose the charisma you lose the spiritual gifts and you lose the ministries that Christ has given us 
to build up the, and equip the body and unify the body, that there is a Holy Spirit reaction. And so we find here, again, around the same time, around 150, 60, 70, there is a sort of, a, the first, what I would call the first charismatic um, movement, renewal movement of the church. Now I have to say, it, um, the guy who is the one who starts it is, is, is a bit strange. His name is Montanus in the movement. It's called Montanism. And he was, um, he was a priest in the worship of a deity called Cybele. They were known to go through ecstatic trances and do some, some strange things. And so the question often asked, was this a genuine conversion? Was this not a genuine conversion? But from what we know, he believed in Jesus um, and he spoke in tongues and we believe he was filled with the Holy Spirit. At least some do, some don't. Again, the church was very divided. And he was joined by two lady prophets who left their husbands. Now we might think, hey, that's a bit dodgy. There's some immorality going on here. But it was nothing of the sort because they were ascetic. They believed that to be single was to be better than be married and equally had a strange view of martyrdom and 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 and, and historically some of them almost all, almost pleaded to become martyrs because they believed that was the second baptism it was a higher a higher form of living this christian life so so many of them were ascetics they they believe in some strange end time teaching so they believed that the new jerusalem was about to come some of them sold their their homes got rid of their belongings and went moved out into the desert waiting for the new jerusalem to come uh, a little bit weird but nevertheless uh, they were a powerful movement and again many of them were persecuted and and died heroic deaths the church's reaction was very mixed. Uh, some condemned it, others said no, there's something genuine here, although it's, it's strange to us. But in the early third century, a theologian called Tertullian, it says he was converted to Montanism. I think what that means is he had a baptism in the Holy Spirit. And, and what that did was he, he, he wrote the first treatise we have on the Holy Spirit, because up to this time, most of the theological debate, as I'm gonna mention in a little while, was concerning the relationship between Jesus and the Father. The Holy Spirit was not only neglected in terms of practice, was in, neglected in terms of understanding and, and, and of doctrine. And that began really what we call, what we call, um, a study of the uh, doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, we haven't got time to go there today, but you can see how these things are developing. And during this period, there were there was these other um, doctrinal discussion. What is what is the relationship between the Father and the Son? And some taught that well, you have the Father, and in Jesus you have an expression of the Father. 
And in the church, in the Holy Spirit, you have an expression. But it's only one, but it's three faces or three modes. And these, these, these were all given different names. Some are called modalism, one mode, three representations. Uh, one, one was called modalistic monarchianism. What a, what a weird name is that? Monarch, one king, three modes. And there was another one where he said, well, it's three faces. And the Trinity is not easy for us to get our heads around. But nevertheless, it began, it was that, it was, it was that debate. So for these, for these uh, 300 years, the church was, was, was struggling internally with these doctrinal uh, differences and difficulties. It really came to a to a head again. Things come to a head, and I see the sovereignty of God in that. Came to a head in the mid of the early fourth century, when um, a Roman emperor, uh, who was uh, at that time, and I'll deal with this in the next lecture. Uh, there were there was basically four emperors: two senior, two juniors, and of course, as would be, they were warring against one another. And the one who came out on top was a guy called Constantine. And Constantine was believed to have been converted. The jury's still out really on that one. But he began to favor the Christians. Now, whether that was a political move because he needed unity, but nevertheless, he did some things which showed that something was happening with him in terms of the Christian faith. But one of the things that happened, he hated, he hated disunity. And there was a, because we wanted a strong empire. And at this time, you know, the Roman Empire is only a couple of hundred years away from, from, from all the, the trouble that was, was, it was brewing on their borders and threatening their existence. But, it, but there was a guy who was a, uh, an elder or presbyter in the church um, um, in... Uh, um, in uh, Egypt, in Alexandria, a guy called Arius. And, and Arius was grappling with this difficulty of, you know, the father, the son. And he, basically, he came up with a little phrase. It was a very clever, charismatic guy. He came up with a little phrase and, and he turned these little theological phrases into sea shanties so people could sing them. And he came up with this little phrase that said there was a time when he was not. So in other words, there was a time when there was a father, then there was a time when the son was a created being out of the father, but not coexistence, co-eternal with the father. Now, what happened was this caused a big punch up in the church and eventually... Um, our emperor, Constantine, got fed up with the whole thing and called a big, big meeting in a place called Nicaea um, of bishops. Even some from, from, from England came and were represented there. Um, eventually they set, they, 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 they consented to a sort of compromise. Um, and, and that battle was to go on for longer. Um, um, Arius was declared a heretic and uh, they came up with a phrase for the 
for the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit of one substance with the Father. A word which, when you translate it from Greek into Latin, caused all sorts of problems because uh, of, of different emphasis. I, I can't go into that now. But these were the battles that the church that the church were fighting at this time, um, and those battles were, go, were to go on into the next century. But what we do have as we come to this time of Constantine is that persecution comes to an end and and the church now comes into some prominence. Was that good? Was that bad? Well, the problem is that when you declare the empire to be Christian, Constantine didn't actually do that, but he led, he started that journey so eventually within 50 60 years then now the empire religion is christianity so you are christian because you are part of the empire not because you've had a personal encounter and enjoying a relationship with jesus christ was that good was that bad well we'll have a look at that a little bit later but that's what happened um, after the acts of the apostles was ended by luke so that battle from within was won but there were there was a price that is often paid to a victory so i hope you will find i found that helpful and i'll be talking to you again soon thanks for listening bye